Okay, I'm going to dive right in this morning because the clock working against us a bit. So we're in Colossians, Colossians 1. I'm going to read the first eight verses for today. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God, our Father, give you grace and peace. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. Okay, well, generally, I, I tend to teach topically. Uh, I mean, uh, take, taking hold of a, of a particular topic, uh, teaching in a series. And the advantage of that is it enables us to zero in on a particular topic for several weeks. It enables us to look at it from all sorts of different angles so we can sink it and dig it deep. But I don't know about you, I also really enjoy working my way through a Bible book from beginning to end, what we call expositional teaching. That means walking through the scriptural text verse by verse, or at least paragraph by paragraph, sometimes even word by word, if that's helpful. The benefits of, of expositional teaching are, are things like this. Number one, it, it leans into the high view of the authority and the integrity and the power of Scripture. I heard someone say, Louis Giglio this week, say that, that when we read Colossians, we're not just talking about letters on a page. We're talking about breath on a page. Because 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's given by inspiration of God. So number one, leans into that high view of Scripture. Number two is, is as we work our way through it, it takes us on a journey. Much as the, the original letter would have taken those first century readers on that journey. Number three is it, it covers areas that we other, otherwise might not get to, which, which is really, really good for balance because we have to go where the text takes us. And then fourthly, and I think this is an important one too, is it, it teaches people, teaches us how to read and interpret and learn from and apply Scripture for ourselves. So the sorts of principles that I hope we'll use through this series will help you in your own personal Bible study. Now at the barn, uh, in 12 years, would you believe, I've done James, I've done the book of Mark, I've done 2 Corinthians, I've done Ephesians, Philippians, I've done 1 Peter, and I've done 1 John. 
And uh, while I was on sabbatical, which was four years ago, we had a wonderful assortment of speakers that worked our way through the book of Acts as well. This one I've chosen is the, the book of Colossians. And the reason I've chosen that one, I think, is because it, it, it's perhaps the, the Bible's most rigorous defense of the lordship of Jesus. The theology in the book is rich, and there's some excellent practical teaching in there as well that's just as relevant to us today as it was to them 20 centuries ago. I want to start by, by laying a foundation for you today. We're going to have a quick look at, at, the, at the original context. We're going to look at one or two of the key characters, and we're going to look at the purpose behind the letter. What issues was the author addressing in this letter? Okay, so starting at the beginning, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course, this is written by, by the apostle Paul, with help from his young protege, whose name was Timothy. You'll notice as you read through the text, actually sometimes Paul uses the pronoun I, and sometimes he uses it, we. It's written to, to a church at a place called Colossae. Uh, it's written to, to brothers and sisters described as the holy. That means those who have been set apart to Christ. And he also describes them as, as the faithful, which was a lovely compliment to play to, to, to what was a young church, which was trying to stay resolute in a world that was at times hostile to them. Colossae, we've got, we got a map just about to appear on the screen. Colossae was a small town in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is western Turkey. Colossae was in the Lycus Valley. Lycus was a river, and, and it formed a small triangle with two other towns that are mentioned in the New Testament, Laodicea and Hierapolis. And the area was, it was an important meeting point on the trade route between East and West. Colossae had in the past, over the past four or five centuries, been quite prosperous. It was known for a dark, reddy, purple, dyed wool cloth called Colossinus. But by this time, you know, it, it, it had been pretty much eclipsed by its neighbours and it declined back into pretty much a small market town. Now, if you, if, if you read through the book in, in chapter 2, verse 1, it implies that Paul himself had never personally visited Colossae. So, so the church there was, was almost certainly the outgrowth of, of Paul's three-year ministry in the city of Ephesus. That was AD 52 through 55, roughly. Ephesus was about 100 miles east of Colossae. And so the Colossian church was essentially what we might call a church plant. This letter was dated about five or six years after Paul left Ephesus, about 61 AD. And by this time, Paul was, was in captivity, probably in Rome under house arrest. Now we know that that at least two residents of Colossae were brought to faith by Paul in Ephesus. 
First character mentioned is Epaphras, and also we have Philemon, which may be a familiar name to you. Epaphras was, was believed to be the, the, the founder and the leader of the church in Colossae. We know that Philemon also lived in the town, as did his former slave Onesimus, that again you might have heard of. And it appears that, that this church met in a few homes, at least to begin with, including Philemon's. It's the point of, of that list of characters. Well, right from the outset, I want you to understand this. This is not a theological textbook per se, which is probably often how we read it. Although it would be fair to say that it does contain much rich theology. This was a letter. This was a letter written to real people. These people were Christian pioneers in the early church about 30 years after the resurrection. Some of the names mentioned were clearly leaders in that church. Others mentioned they just rolled their sleeves up to serve. We, we read of, of people offering hospitality. They were often commended. But the point is they were ordinary people. Ordinary people walking out their faith, wanting to be more like Jesus and trying to represent him faithfully to the world around them, just as we are. So why did Paul write the letter? Well, at, uh, at some time during Paul's imprisonment in Rome, this character called Epaphras asked Paul, Paul for help in dealing with, with some false teaching that had began to, th begun to threaten this young embryonic church. And that false teaching was an early form of what came to be called Gnosticism, with a silent G. And the challenge that they were facing was this. What had started as a pure gospel gradually began to be adapted and to be distorted and to be diluted. People were taking Paul's gospel and they were adding to it, claiming to improve it. Now, Greek religion, as we know, was, a, was, was syncretistic. That means it was a right old mishmash mix of all sorts of different beliefs. There, there was the ancient Greek and Roman mythology that you probably learned in high school. There was a splattering of, of Jewish legalism. There was this new Christianity that was growing, that there was quite a lot of paganism. In the city of Colossae, there was actually a, a kind of angel cult specific to that area. And what happened was elements of each of those started to rear their ugly heads and started to feed into a range of different false teachings. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, again with a silent G, which means to know. The Gnostics considered themselves to be the people who were in the know. And they taught that what you really needed was their superior form of knowledge. And if you were amongst the enlightened ones, you could achieve spiritual fullness. And you could achieve it through that special knowledge and through rigorous self-discipline. Gnosticism taught 
amongst other things, that Jesus was neither fully God nor fully man. Actually, Jesus was merely one of one of the semi-divine beings that, that bridged the divide between God and the world. So the key challenge that they were facing essentially was a challenge to the deity and the lordship of Jesus. And so Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians defending the sufficiency and the supremacy and the centrality of Christ. As we'll see as we work our way through, the first two chapters are, are theology, really, and chapters three and four are more of the practical application. With that in mind, that, that's their context. What about ours? Do you know what? Forms of this kind of syncretism, forms of, of Gnosticism have infiltrated the, the religion and philosophy of our day too. We're aware, aren't we, of the, of the explosion of new age ideas and teachings. Universalism is increasingly popular. The idea that, don't worry about it, because everyone will be saved in the end. Or another idea that we hear a lot, which is that, which is that all roads lead to God. You know, many of the world religions, they don't deny Jesus, but they certainly dilute and even dethrone him. And of course, there are numerous Christian cults, sects that, that actually question or at least limit the lordship of Jesus. But, but I'll go further than that. New Age and the great world religions are, are not the only threats to the pure Christianity. There is a danger, I think, that we take biblical Christianity, and we add into it a little bit of consumerism. We insist on our own take on morality and sexuality. We mix in our own political ideology. The next thing you know, the gospel has been subtly twisted or corrupted just a little bit. Scripture gets compromised. Worship reverts to being legalistic. And truth starts to become relative and, and individualistic. Enlightenment becomes exclusive. And even Jesus starts to appear superfluous. So we end up with, with subtle false teaching. We end up with doctrines that divide rather than unite. We end up with practice that, that looks a little bit more like personal preference. And Jesus is no longer at the centre of it all. Which brings us back to, to the overriding message of Colossians, which is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. That it's not about our own self-sufficiency. It's not about individualism. It's not about our own rights or our own version of truth. You know, that's like a yeast that, that leavens the whole batch of dough. So do you know what? It won't do us any harm to go through Colossians, making sure we have all of that correctly aligned. Okay, so with that introduction done and, and that backdrop established, we've got time this morning just to dive into this first section. So I'll read again 
verses 3 to 8, this time in the NIV. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and the day you understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, if you read this in, I read the NLT first and, and the NIV, the, the, the heading for the subsection is thanksgiving and prayer. And essentially, this, this letter starts with, with a word of encouragement to the church. And that passage we've just read compliments them really on three things. Number one, it compliments on the, them on their faith in Jesus Christ. And having looked at what Paul was addressing in this letter, it's no surprise, I think, that he starts right there. Number one, their faith in Christ Jesus. Number two, he compliments them on their love for one another. Of course, our love for one another is the acid test of our maturity and our faithfulness. And the third thing he compliments them in verse six is on their, their fruit bearing. You know, under their ministry, in their community, in their church, lives are changing. And hearts are softening and grace is working and relationships are being restored and souls are being saved. And the, the takeaway from, from that for us is, is that, that, that we're talking here about three hallmarks, if you like, of a, of a biblically faithful community of believers. That community will be, number one, it will be strong in faith. Number two, it'll be rich in love. Number three, it will be abounding in fruit. So as I, I read this, this section of Fresh, I was actually just had a couple of lovely days, a little cottage in Herefordshire, and I was reading through this again. Two thoughts kind of jumped into my mind or leapt, I think, into my spirit. I'm going to read verse six again, and then I'll share what those two thoughts were, and then I'll unpack them a little bit. Verse 6, this same good news, this gospel that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. So here are my two thoughts. Thought number one is that the pure gospel is powerful, fruit-bearing seed. Number one. Number two, it is a true understanding of grace will change your life. Unpack those a little bit. Number one, the pure gospel is a powerful, fruit-bearing seed. We're talking about the true gospel. We're talking about the real gospel. We're talking about the pure gospel. We're not talking about any imitation or, or distortion or substitute, we're talking here about the real deal. We're talking here about that, that beautiful, simple gospel that the Colossian believers first heard from Paul or maybe Epaphras. We're talking about that message of amazing grace 
salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're talking about a gospel that stands strong and complete and eternal in the finished work of Christ Jesus on the cross. What do we know about that pure gospel? Remember that a a significant part of Paul's mandate in writing this letter is to draw them back to the purity of the true gospel. It's to keep them rooted in the purity of the true gospel. The Amplified says, indeed, in the whole world, that gospel is bearing fruit and it still is growing by its own inherent power. What do we know about the pure gospel? Number one, the gospel is good news. The message of mercy and grace, that free gift of eternal life, John 3.16, that we looked at last Sunday. Number two, the gospel is truth. Jesus said, John 14.6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. We know John 8.32 says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The point is, is a faith that is not rooted on the word of truth, mere superstition. Number three, as we read here, the gospel is universal. The gospel is for everyone. In the text, he uses the expression all, all over the world. Number four, the gospel is, is productive. It's like seed, and it always produces fruit. Isaiah 55, verse 10, the the word that comes out of my mouth, Isaiah said, or God said, actually, will not return to me void, but will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent, that the gospel is like a seed, and it is guaranteed to produce fruit after its own kind. As we read in the Amplified sort of version of this, it's the gospel number five. The gospel carries inherent dunamis power of God the Holy Spirit. Paul said, Romans 1 verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all that believe. Number six, we know that the gospel is humanly transmitted. In this case, by Epaphras. And then number seven, we know that the gospel is incorruptible, relevant in this context, but the the enemy has tried. The gospel is incorruptible, it's uncontainable, though many would want it to be, and it's imperishable, because in the end, the gospel wins. The point is that Paul knew, Paul knew that the gospel stands and falls upon one thing, stands or falls upon one person, upon one life, upon one death, upon one Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. So this letter is, is designed to defend and unpack and ultimately unleash this gospel because the gospel is uncontainable. It's all powerful and it's very very good news. That's my first thought. My second thought is this. A true understanding of grace will change your life. 
Read verse 6 again. The gospel is bearing fruit everywhere. That was point one. How? By changing lives. Just as it changed your lives when you first heard and when you understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. I said, as I read this afresh a couple of weeks ago, the following thought jumped into my mind. And it goes like this. An understanding of saving grace. An understanding of cross and resurrection and what that means. An understanding of saving grace will change your eternal destiny. And that's good news. That's worthy of an amen right there. But... An understanding of the power and the depth and the fullness of God's wonderful grace will change your whole life. What do I mean by that? Ephesians 2 tells us it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? It's a free gift. You can't earn it. No one can boast about it. It's all because of Jesus. That's good news. But if you really understand grace, if you really understand what it is, if you understand what it does, if you understand how it works, then that will change your life. It'll change your relationships. It'll change the decisions you make. It'll change the state of your heart. It'll change how you sleep at night. And it'll change your fruitfulness as a follower of Jesus. You see, a grace that is prepared to forgive and let go will never be weighed down with offense. A a grace that gives people the room to fail and to grow will never become impatient and frustrated. Grace that always chooses kindness will have healthier and stronger and more widespread relationships. A grace that draws on God's strength, doesn't expect itself to be perfect, will have reasonable and rational and attainable self-expectations. And a grace that trusts God's got it won't feel the need to work it and to to force it and to make it happen and will therefore sleep much better at night. I want to define grace for you. One of the definitions of grace is this. Grace is imparted power and ability to do in God's strength what we would ordinarily struggle to do in our own. Or I could put it like this. It's God's bestowed, that means given God's bestowed ability to go beyond our natural ability so that we can do what his word demands. So grace grace empowers us to to obey the, the imperatives of scripture that otherwise can be really hard. We read the Bible and go, if only I could do that. If only I could forgive. If only I could serve. If only I could, whatever it is, You know, and the Bible's quite strong in its imperatives, do and be. In our own strength, sometimes that is just unattainable. That is why we need grace. We need this impartation of a a power and ability. We need this enabling to do. What I can't do in my own strength, 
I could put it like this, in my own strength, I can't. But with grace, it becomes impossible. Look at three quick verses to, to kind of sink that deep and then we'll wrap up. Verse number one, I haven't got time for the full context of these verses, wonderful though they are. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, this is the context of Paul and that thorn in the flesh that was kind of tormenting him. God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, grace is God's sufficiency. The point is here, Paul, you can't, you just can't, because you're weak or, or you're inadequate or you're unable. But if that's you, you're welcome to the human race. God is saying here, my grace is sufficient for you. And the grace of God was sufficient for Paul's thorn in the flesh. God's grace will be sufficient for whatever you are facing today. Hebrews 4 verse 16, second one. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here's the point. Grace is available. Grace is readily and freely available to you, but you need to learn how to draw on it. You need to learn how to receive that grace. Grace, you need to learn how to press pause and breathe it in. You need to learn how to yield to grace when your flesh is screaming and when your emotions are tugging, when the circumstances are distracting. I'd encourage you to ask this question. It's a great question to ask. At that crucial moment, when the red mist sets in, when you're facing a difficult decision, whatever it is, ask yourself this question. Am I drawing out of grace? Or am I acting out of impulse? said that's a great question to ask because that grace has the power to change your life. And the third one, very quickly, Philippians 4 verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens, who enables me. Ultimately, grace is our choice. I've got a choice. I can do it through Christ or not. I can do it in his strength or mine. I can choose to apply that in all things or to some things every now and again. The invitation that Paul is giving in Philippians 4.13 is you can do all things. You can do it through Christ because he is the one who strengthens you with his grace. Of course, here's the problem. Human nature, our pride and ego, our education and training pull us into self-sufficiency. You know, we tend to, to do it ourselves. We tend to do it our own way and we tend to do it in our own strength. And that doesn't even matter whether it's worked for us in the past. We still tend to struggle on and to dig in and to cling on. God has promised all-sufficient grace. He's promised us the grace to, to provide us with the strength and the ability, with, with the patience, with, with the kindness we need 
at those pivotal, tough moments. And that spins us full circle back to the central message of Colossians. Do we believe that Jesus is sufficient or not? And if the issue at stake in this letter is that sufficiency and the supremacy and the centrality of Christ, what does your practical theology look like? Are you mixing in a little bit of self-reliance? A spot of good works and religion? Do you allow your own preferences or, or agendas or your own rights to dominate? Or is Jesus Christ the Lord? I don't know about you, but I've heard it said, if he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Well, I'm not sure I completely agree with that, if I'm honest, because we're all on a journey of surrender. We all have elements of self that need to be put to death. We all have parts of our lives that, that need to be repeatedly surrendered. The good news is, he is Lord. He is supreme, and he is sufficient, and he is sovereign. And if we let it, if we let it, the gospel will bear fruit in our lives and in their lives. And if we will let it, there is an endless supply of grace to enable us to live the life that our commitment to Christ Okay, if the worship team would like to come to the front, that'd be great. I'm just going to think about how we might respond to this this morning. And it goes something like this. Two questions for you to, to mirror my two thoughts. The first one is, which gospel? Which gospel? Have you, have you maybe inadvertently started to add something else in? Do you need maybe to go back to that first love? Is the, is the gospel that we've read about this morning, is the gospel in you bearing fruit? Is the gospel changing your life? As I said, it's a seed. That's what it does. As that seed grows, it will inevitably bear and produce fruit. And that's the challenge today. Is that gospel producing fruit in you? That might be a question that you would want to take to the Lord this morning. And then question number two is this, is grace winning in your life? Do you habitually breathe in his grace or do you roll up your sleeves? Is a life dominated by grace producing in you and for you the fruit of peace? Here's a question to take to the Lord. What would grace do in your current circumstances right now?